Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. My guest today is Kevin Clark, Senior Editor at America Magazine in New York. America Magazine is among the most important journals of religion and culture, blending news and commentary as it covers issues of importance around the world. One of those important issues, the crises of refugees around the world, brought Kevin Clark to DePaul University in Chicago as part of its Corporal Works of Mercy series. With more than 60 million people forced out of their homes worldwide, Clark asks what it means to welcome the stranger in a world grown hostile to refugees and their needs. You've written a great deal on this topic. How did you, how did you come to have such, an, such a vested interest in making this topic more, more visible and more understandable? Well, I don't know. It's, you know, I, I, I think I consider myself the utility infielder at America, and uh, uh, which means that uh, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I have to learn about them quickly as the assignments come in. Uh, I've always been interested in uh, humanitarian efforts. Uh, you know, uh, I'm Catholic. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm concerned about the, the, the status of other people, especially people in crisis. Uh, and in this time in, 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 in world history, the people in crisis are 66 million uh, people who are forcibly dislocated from their homes. In a recent piece, you uh, had a line I wanted you to unpack, if you would, or elaborate a bit on. You wrote, quote, it is one of the terrible paradoxes of the modern global refugee crisis. Often those countries least capable of responding to the complex needs of refugees are the ones forced to shoulder the greatest burden in caring for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a question, uh, it's a dilemma of geography. Uh, the, the number one refugee dislocated people's crisis in the world right now is Syria. Uh, who, is, who is really getting, uh, is holding the bag trying to, to deal with the, that, uh, the ways of humanity that are trying to escape that violence? It's Lebanon, it's Jordan, it's Turkey. Now, Turkey's a little better off, but they're spending billions trying to, uh, to maintain the refugee uh, population that they have now setting in camps along their borders. Lebanon and Jordan, much, much less uh, up to the job uh, in terms of national wealth. Uh, in Africa, it's even worse. A country like Kenya, which is, which is a developing nation with not a lot of reserves, is hosting one of the largest refugee, refugee populations in the world right now from Somalia and the Sudan. Um, there's a lot of lip service, and there's, there's money delivered in support of these communities, uh, these ad hoc communities of refugees, but it really is not uh, covering the bill, really. A lot of these countries are, are dip, dipping into their own reserves that, uh, or lack of reserves to try and, and uh, maintain these populations, uh, thousands and thousands of people. To the extent that some of these places, like the camp in uh, northern Kenya that you mentioned, is is scheduled to be closed by the Kenyan government sometime in the foreseeable future. Well, they, they periodically raise that specter, and then they get bombarded with criticism, and they seem to back off. I think the last time I wrote about this, they were they were it was like the second or third time they were seriously going to close down these camps. Uh, they seem to have backed away. Is that part of an appeal to get more adequate resources? I think it is. I think they're saying, look, we cannot handle this. And, you know, they've had uh, Somali refugees in Kenya since 1991. Uh, that's a long time uh, for a country to be burdened. I hate to keep using that word burden, but it is a country like Kenya does not have a lot of uh, disposable income to address this crisis. And they do get some money from the U.N. The U.N. gets money from us and from Europe. 
but it's not really enough. It's not adequate to the job. It's certainly not adequate to the job of humanely uh, dealing with these refugee populations uh, in a way where, where they can feel like they're, they're not just spinning their gears, waiting and hoping for something to change. You mentioned the aggregate figure of somewhere around 65 million people being displaced. Close to 66 million. Um, as you take a look at that sort of in a, in a panoramic view, um, I'm impressed by the extent to which many of these crises that dislocate people are not what you would consider temporary. There are people in refugee camps in the Middle East who've been there 70 years. So the, the camps you've mentioned in different parts of Africa, you're, you're verging on 30 years before, before too long. Um, what is it about displacement of persons that seems so intractable as a, you know, in terms of moving forward and moving beyond the kind of permanent e emergency footing? Well, there's a couple of things happening. First of all, I, I don't think, I mean, when the Palestinians first went into their camps, did anyone think 60 years later we'd still be dealing with a Palestinian refugee population? I don't even think they're counted anymore in, when they do these averages. I think the average waiting period now is 25 years, excluding the Palestinians who are considered such outliers now that they don't even they don't want to skew the results by including them. Um, these crises have just lasted much longer. Did anyone think the Syrian war would be going into its seventh year? You know, there are people who left, were forced out almost immediately, and they probably thought, well, maybe in a few months I'll be able to go home. It's sort of that temporary thinking, both on the part of the refugees and upon the hosting nations and upon the thinking of the, the, multi, the international community as well. Um, the hosting nations... Uh, probably are pushing uh, the hardest for some kind of long-term fixer because, uh, as I mentioned, they're getting the, the, the rawest deal, well, aside from the refugees themselves. Um, the long-term planning gets tricky because if, if, the, if we're expecting refugees to stay for more than five years, more than 10 years, more than 15 years, well, what are we... We can't call these temporary camps any longer. Are they going to become... Settlements? Are they going to become cities? Can these people be integrated into the host nation's society? Well, that starts raising all sorts of alarms for the nations like Kenya or Turkey or Jordan or Lebanon. They don't want... Lebanon is overpopulated with refugee populations. They, they do not want to absorb yet another crisis into their uh, already chaotic uh, society. So there's a stiff resistance there. Uh, we don't want these kids to go to our schools. We don't want to give uh, refugee parents uh, uh, the ability to get jobs. You know, how do they sustain themselves when they're in this kind of uh, this kind of bureaucratic limbo? So that re resistance comes from from the refugees themselves. You know, maybe they want to go home. Maybe they want this thing to end. So they're they're also thinking short term. You know, what's the point of getting uh, the kids in school? We're going to be out of here soon. How do you factor into that the phenomenon not only of refugees as defined under international law, which are people displaced across international borders, with the, in some measures, an even as large or sometimes larger constituency of internally displaced people who have been forcibly re relocated from one part of their country to another. They haven't crossed a national border, so they're not they're, they're not able to access even the minimal kind of services and support that the international community would make available because they're still technically under the yeah. auspices of they're not the, refugees. the sovereign state who may have displaced them. Yeah. Well, that's part of, uh, uh, I think, last year, the, the 
there was an attempt to try and, and, and uh, approach some of these dilemmas and these contradictions with the, the great the grand bargain that was was uh, established between uh, you know the NGOs, the hosting nations, the the nations that are providing resources via the UN, um, and that's something they have to look at. It, it, this out of the 66 million people who were forcibly dislocated, I think only about 17 million of them qualify technically as refugees. The rest of them. Uh, stateless people are about 10 million, and the rest are these IDPs, internally displaced people, that uh, they're in a real quagmire because they don't, they don't qualify for these benefits. They don't qualify for resettlement uh, uh, options in third-party uh, uh, third states, which is, uh, you know, would, for a lot of refugees, the, the dream is to get the heck out of Jordan or Lebanon or Turkey and find a permanent place to live in Europe or the United States or Canada, Australia. Those areas and those states are, are resisting that. I mean, our government just decided yesterday that what was already a parsimonious quota for refugees is, is going to be even lower. It's going to be 45,000, I think, is what they want to do next year. That's not even touching this IDP population. They are really kind of stuck. And part of the, the revision of uh, the way the world is, is dealing with this forcibly relocated people problem is is taking uh, a hard look at what to do about I keep I'm going to say IDPs again it's a shorthand I kind of hate it because it seems like it it just sort of diminishes people to to uh, an abbreviation but um that's that's going to be something that we we're still going by World War II rules basically 1945 through 1950 establishing all these these uh, protocols and agreements about how to handle refugees these people didn't factor in at the time, so they, they need to revise a lot of the, the way they appreciate uh, forcibly uh, relocated people. Tell me what you see in recent years or in, on the horizon uh, with new kinds of dislocating factors. I mean, much of the, as you say, the international system and structures under law and regulatory policy have been formed around definitions of refugees under the UN which are uh, conflict-oriented. Right, a well-founded yeah. fear of persecution to the point where you have a letter from your oppressor saying, I'm going to come get you on Tuesday, otherwise you sometimes have trouble getting... Paperwork is important, accepted. so save, save your paper. When you have n emerging issues, emerging in the consciousness of the West anyway, like climate, where dislocations and disruptions are going to become much more prevalent and already are appearing everywhere you look... Um, do you see, I mean, I assume people are thinking about that, but as from your vantage point, how much resiliency in the system is there to be able to accommodate some of this? I don't think there's much at all. Uh, I think uh, within the, the community of people that work in non-governmental non-government, agencies and uh, direct service and advocacy, this is a very prominent concern. I'm not so sure it's penetrated uh you know, in Foggy Bottom or in, in Brussels, uh, among the bureaucrats and the, and the politicians who make the policies, um, this this is going to be. I mean, we still treat people coming from Central America who have legitimate concerns about their safety, who have been threatened by gangs, who have legitimate fears for uh, violence being done to them. We still stop them at the border and call them economic migrants and, and absolve ourselves of any responsibility to them. Uh, so we're not even living by the current standards uh, because those people have a claim to asylum because of fear of violence, and we're ignoring it. And the current standards were always corrupted by politics in the past anyway. During the Cold War, your chances of receiving 
political asylum in a place like the United States collapsed into the low single digits if you were fleeing a regime that was an ally of the U.S. government. So yeah, if you seen... were fleeing from Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, the approval rates were 4%, 5%, whereas if you were running from an East Bloc regime or from Cuba, it was, yeah. it was substantially higher. The, higher. the Cuban policy was probably the most um, outrageous in, in that respect. Um, I think we had laws in the 50s that were specific to various, uh, like the Hungarian crisis, or uh, that were very specific to conflicts with, with the Soviet Union. Um, people from Haiti did not get the same treatment. Uh, they were economic migrants. Uh, they're escaping starvation for a lot of them, but that's still they still qualify as economic migrants. People who are going to be fleeing um, higher water, you know, people maybe in uh, in countries like Haiti uh, that are you know that are threatened by storms and by rising sea level. I don't. I think they're going to have a very hard time uh, putting a, a claim down in the United States for uh, you know being climate refugees. Uh, as ever, however legitimate that might be in practical terms. Uh, I mean, our government is not even recognizing people who have valid claims on, on refugee status as it is, uh, fleeing conflict, fleeing violence. So I think it's gonna, they're going to have a very tough time getting uh, a landing here in the United States. Tell me about the role of the Catholic Church in addressing issues like this. What have you seen and heard? What, what's, the, what's the picture look like? Well, in terms of uh, relief work, you know, the, the Catholic Church does a lot of uh, things around the world via Caritas Internationalis and, and closer to home Catholic Relief Services. So there's a lot of that direct you know, humanitarian response work that they do. Uh, the Holy See also works, has a diplomatic arm that works at the UN on, uh, on, on refugee issues. And I think they've, pro they've been at the forefront in, 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 in this sort of reevaluation effort. Like how, how do we define what's a refugee? What makes sense uh, in, the, in the real terms in, in the real world today? Uh, they also bring a dimension that is completely lacking, which is um, uh, lacking otherwise in the, in, the, in the UN's bureaucratic world or secular world, which is, you know, this is a spiritual uh, non-negotiable for us. Uh, we are, as Christians, wherever we live in the world, whether in the United States, Europe, when people f flee to us seeking solace and, and consolation and, and support, we have to... We have to open our arms to that. I and mean, that's a tough message for average Catholics who, like other Americans, you know, sort of consistently don't like this idea of refugees having a moral claim to us, to our, our protection and, our, and uh, us providing sustenance to them. But this is a claim that goes beyond politics. It goes beyond governments. It goes beyond Western history. It goes to the heart of being a Christian. And that's that's what the church brings. When uh, I mean, they also have very practical arguments as well, and very well couched political arguments about the legitimacy of this position. But it, at the back of it is, is Jesus just saying, you know, feed my hungry, uh, clothe my naked, uh, bring water to the thirsty, shelter to the homeless. Can you talk a bit about the role of Saint of uh, of Pope Francis? In it's not a saint yet, but we're. <laughs> The role of Pope Francis in bringing visibility to this issue, he seems to invest a great deal of effort and energy in making sure this one doesn't slide off the off the radar screen. He has considered, like from from the beginning months of his uh, his papacy, he has he has consistently uh, talked about migrant, not just refugees, but people in migration all over the world uh, as a special concern. Um, 
and in that sense, he certainly kept the issue uh, in the headlines and 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 some level of in the awareness of American Catholics. I sometimes wonder, you know, I think a lot of them would be shocked uh, at how challenging and and uh, radical is the right word uh, the basic obligations of being Catholic actually are. And Francis, all he's doing, he's not saying anything that that Benedict wouldn't have said, or John Paul II wouldn't have said, or anyone going back to Pius would would have said. Uh, but he, the one thing he's done is expanding it a little beyond. There was a previous con, con, uh, conceit for fellow Catholics, maybe not so much fellow Christians, but fellow Catholics who were refugees escaping from uh, decaying Europe in the 19th century or from conflict in World War One and World War Two. Francis has just blown it wide open, and he says repeatedly uh, he embraces the Muslim migrants as if they, you know, they are part of his flock as well, and he's. He really, you know, he really makes it plain that to him there is no documented or undocumented, no, no slave, no Greek, no Roman, you know, no American, and no people without paper. They are people in need, and uh, and our obligation as Catholics, as Christians, is to respond to that need. He has, I, I want to say, like every week, I think he's brought it up. Uh, unemployment among young people—that's how he goes to this. This is a constant thing that he's worried about. And I think these are, you know, th those are both very profound and very uh, wise things to be worried about uh, as we as we scuttle through the beginning of the 21st century. Do you see ripples coming out of the posture he's he's put forward that are, you know, responding to either his leadership or his entreaties to take this issue more centrally to heart? I think the, I, the ironic thing I th I think I see more evidence of that in Washington than I do in parish pews sometimes. I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, I'm part of my own parish. I'm on my own parish council. I know how hard it is sometimes to, to bring Catholic social teaching uh, to people and, and get them to hear it. They're often shocked by it, you know. It really challenges where we sit in, in, the, in, the, in the first world, uh, you know, middle class to upper middle class. And here I'm presuming that audience, uh, perhaps incorrectly, but it's a very challenging message for them to hear. I think he's been more successful raising the issue at the sort of the uh, geopolitical level as a as a as a major concern at the United Nations or in Washington. Why do you think that might be the case? That maybe there's a little more willingness to listen among institutional leaders than in you know than in the pews of you know the majority of pastoral settings, or at least the pastoral settings that you described, where you're talking about a, a white middle class constituency rather than the Latino aspects yeah, of the church. Because it's not the, as hard for them to hear, because a lot of them are coming out of that experience. Um, is it just sort of cultural amnesia? Is it oh, definitely being over being overly formed <laughs> by their culture? Definitely, there's a certain. I mean, how many uh, of European descent Catholics in the United States came here because they're forefathers were fleeing something, fleeing, fleeing some tyrant, fleeing some other, I'm Irish, so I think everybody knows that story, um, or of Irish descent, I should say. Um, a lot of us came here to flee a, a power that was, was repressing our, our people. A couple of generations in, when you've got, you know, I don't know, an investment account and a mortgage to pay off, it does seem like uh, things, some things are, are easily forgotten, unfortunately. And, um, I think I don't know Francis's appeal to the the uh, political makers and, and breakers. Uh, I think it, they're shocked uh, to have a, a spiritual figure speak on these issues. So that kind of wakes them up 
whether they're pro, uh, whether they follow, they agree with him or disagree with him, it's it kind of surprises them to have a, a religious figure speak so specifically on what they consider their their purview of these political geopolitical policies. Um, so there might be a bit of a novelty there that that uh, and his, his own his his, per, his very personal way of doing it uh, uh, attracts the media. You know, the media love him. Uh, they, they love those plane rides home from wherever he's visiting when he spills that, you know, that one great comment that becomes the headlines for the next day. Um, there, and, and he has the same appeal among average Catholics. But I do, I think the message that he is giving them, which is the legit message of the church, hasn't changed. It's a very tough, a tough one for us to accept. Um, it, because it requires sacrifice. It requires us changing the way we do things, changing our policies. And, and how we divvy up our own resources. Do you think it reflects in part the extent to which Christianity as a transnational phenomenon has been domesticated by national identities and the idea that American and Catholic, the, which one's the adjective and which one's the noun, tends to get, tends to get confounded? Yeah, um, that is, that is a tr that's, that's a difficult challenge for us to... Uh, to put the faith and the, the requirements of faith, you know, this, this series that I'm joining is about the corporal works of, of mercy. Um, that's, that's a lot of hard stuff in there and we're all supposed to do it. You know, this is not, these are not supposed to be a nice to have in your, your lifetime as a Catholic. If there's, they're, they're, uh, they're integral. You have to do them. And, uh, from the personal to the political, these things apply, uh, broadly as well. Um, it, it's hard. So, you know, I guess on some, to some extent, it's easy to, to just activate the American identity and ignore the, the, the Christian identity that's more challenging. Well, let's put the U.S. piece of it aside for a minute. One of the unusual, I think, really beneficial aspects of a position like yours is that you have a bit of a catbird seat to get glimpses of what's going on in the church all over the, all over the world. You've been able to travel some. You've been able to meet with and interview church leaders and pastoral agents at all levels in lots of different parts of the, of the world. When it comes to these kinds of questions, where have you seen occasions for hope? Where, where have you seen people who have taken the gospel seriously on these terms and have you know, leaned more into the kind of invitation and summons that Francis has put forward? Wow, I, I guess I'd have to say, unfortunately, I see it most in parts of the world where uh, it's not abstract. Fighting for justice is, is an everyday reality, uh, and how the, the role the church plays in, in pressing for justice. Uh, and that suggests you know, a great deal of uh, struggle and suffering in Central America, uh, in, in parts of Africa. Um, yeah, I, it's... In Camden, New Jersey, you know, there are there are people who who take the, the the church's social justice teaching very seriously because they have no choice. They're struggling for economic justice. They're struggling for survival. It's not just outside of our borders. Um, they have to make it real because they have no choice. I guess that's sort of the luxury of being, um, you know, a, a professional class Catholic is uh, I can I can either treat it as a charming uh, addendum to my spiritual life. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, sort of an existential uh, issue for me. 
which I, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's uh, unfortunate to have that level of privilege, but there it is. Can you tell me about some of the traveling you've done? Some of these things? I mean, you were, you, you spent some time in Central African Republic? Central African Republic, yes. Uh, I was there a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, that was probably if I'd realized how dangerous it was, I might, I might not have gone. I, uh, it, it, it seemed like a, it, it seemed like a, a, a fairly okay proposition. I went with Catholic Relief Services. They're very careful. But, uh, you know, we did go out into the countryside unarmed, and the countryside was still a little out of control at the time. Uh, in fact, the night I, I left the capital city, Bangui, uh, a journalist was killed in, a, in an ambush uh, by the Celica militants who were still kind of circulating. It was a very odd situation because the, the um, major violence was over. But every day uh, that I was there, there was this tit-for-tat stuff that would happen at nightfall, and people were pulled out of their beds and killed. Uh, you know, uh, there'd be confrontations in the, in the alleys and in the, in the back streets of the capital. And out in the countryside... Uh, people never knew um, when an, another attack might come. Uh, the, the, some of the villages I visited, they had been stripped bare. I mean, these people didn't have much to begin with, but like their seeds were taken for the next year's, uh, the next year's planting. All their tools were gone. They were completely reliant on, uh, you know, in a functioning government, they would have been completely reliant on their government, but there was no functioning government. There still is barely a functioning government there. So they were kind of completely reliant on people like uh, Catholic Relief Services to come in and bring them uh, not just food, but the tools they would need to get through the next year. Um, it was, a, it was the, the, that level of vulnerability was really kind of shocking to see. Um, these people really living uh, on the, the edge of, of sustenance and, and survivability. Um, you know, I got back home to my kids and I just was looking at them as you better not complain to me about anything ever again for the rest of your lives. Because what I've just seen was, um, you know, should put us all to shame. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk to you for a bit about life as a journalist, especially life working in religious journalism. Um, can you talk about what you see as the mission of being a, being a journalist who's area of expertise is is religion and society, Catholicism in particular? Well, I mean, I, I, I like to flatter myself that if I were working in the secular press, I'd still be a Catholic journalist. I don't know, maybe they would, they would beat the uh, Catholicism out of me slowly but surely. Uh, on the other hand, working in the Catholic press, uh, you know, it's kept me interested in, in my faith, uh, probably in ways that I, I wouldn't be if I, if I had become a secular journalist. I call it sometimes the world's most expensive evangelization program, you know, my 30 years in the Catholic press. Uh, and I'm very grateful to the people who paid my salary while I, I got in deeper uh, in, in the Catholic life and Catholic spirituality and Catholic teaching. Uh, it's been an on-the-job training program. I think any, any journalist who's, who's a Catholic, you're going to bring that wherever you're working, New York Times, Washington Post, America Magazine, you're going to bring, uh, hopefully, you're going to bring that into your work, and you're going to be looking to uh, to write those stories that make a difference, that that uh, protect human dignity, that that uh, that help re resolve some social inequities that that are you know obvious to us. Uh, so in that sense, I, I don't think there's that much different. Um, we get to get some inside baseball stuff on on how the church actually operates. 
which I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse because, you know, uh, it's... it's well, I think there's an accumulation of expertise that's increasingly valuable and hard to find these days. Most secular newspapers at, at one time might have had a religion, religion reporter, reporter yeah. or a labor reporter or an education reporter. All those specialized beats have gone the way of the dinosaur. Yeah. And so... Hell, they don't even have foreign... They, you know, foreign there are no foreign reports. foreign bureaus. Everyone relies yeah. on stringers. Um, yeah. So the only repository left of people who can write reflectively and with a sense of context increasingly seem to be those that are, you know, that are applying their their trade on religiously affiliated institutions and publications. Well, I think it's it's you know it's easy to blame the journalism profession for that, but I think it's it's broader. I mean, it's it's the, it's the way society is going. It's just. Um, I'm 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 amazed at how little some reporters seem to know about American labor history. You know, I uh, I taught a magazine writing class for for journalists at a college that shall remain nameless, and all these kids were getting their their masters or BAs in journalism, and I, I would ask them about American labor history, and they hadn't. It was like a, they had no idea what I was talking about, and I, I said, you know what, you guys should do: stop studying journalism, go get a BA in history or American social history. That will serve you. A thousand times better, and so you see the same thing with religion. There are the questions we get because we're, you know, in New York, we're sort of uh, the backstop for reporters before they file a story. They want to make sure they haven't screwed it up completely. They will check with somebody in America, uh, you know, especially about the church, about Catholicism, but you know, generally about religion. And it's it's sometimes kind of shocking uh, how little they know. But I think it's a broader ignorance. It's not just among reporters, it's among, uh, you know, everybody. Uh, I, I swear, I, I feel like it should be a required class in public high school. I don't know why it isn't, because it's not promoting any single religion, but com comparative religions, you know, learn about these other faiths. They, look at the role that religion has to play in our world right now. It is driving world history, right? Are, are we understanding how it's driving and why it's driving world history? A lot of reporters don't know, and they've got to write about it. So I guess, you know, when someone like Pope Francis has become such a prominent conscience for the world over and over again, the fact that we understand where he's coming from, that we understand he's part of a tradition, he's not just some, you know, uh, John the Baptist uh, of the 21st century, he's part of a, a long uh, lineage of teaching and scripture and, and uh, acts uh, of good works. Uh, yeah, that does give us an advantage over other reporters, uh, other journalists who are trying to cover world affairs. In your work at America Magazine, um, how do you manage to stay on top of so many issues simultaneously? Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I don't even, I, I, in all honesty, I don't. You know, there is too much. Uh, there's a lot going on. I, th I think one thing that's proven helpful to me is I got rid of cable TV. Mm -hmm. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox, uh, which I know sounds ridiculous, uh, but uh, coming from a journalist, but these are, they, they suck you in and it's, and it's just crazy land out there. I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. I'm going back, you know, and I advise people to do the same. Go old school. Get it on paper. Read, read the newspapers. It's, it's slower. It's more meditative. You absorb the information. Um, Get it on print, folks. Uh, you know, that goes for America Magazine as well, if anybody wants to subscribe. I think just the whole process of, of, of trying to absorb information uh, in that visceral way. Um, and having said that, I still i am on my iPhone a lot, too, reading these papers. I don't mean 
necessarily have to physically hold the paper. But um, people who write for print, they're, they're more thorough. They get the story straight. They don't print rumors most of the time. There's, there's always an occasional lapse. But they're not just regurgitating rumors or things somebody else told them. They check it out, right? What was the Chicago News Bureau's great motto? If your mother says she loves you, check it out. Yep, and I think uh, you know that should be tattooed on every reporter's forearm. Unfortunately, we live in an era when the blogosphere, reported, legitimate journalism, it's all kind of meshed together, and it's meshed together not just in the public's imagination, but in the minds of the reporters themselves. Oh, is my report edgy enough? Did I, you know, put enough, you know, a gritty analysis in there? Well, sometimes you're just being a reporter, so no, that's not appropriate. But uh, there, uh, there's a lot of pressure to have the the hot take, right? And uh, bad journalism is resulting from that. So how do I absorb more? I do less, I think. Not a bad idea. You mentioned before about journalists being killed abroad. I mean, the International Committee for the Protection of Journalists talks about how this has become one of the most dangerous fields of all in many parts of the world today. Um, have you seen that in the reporters and correspondents that you've worked with? Um, well, uh, we uh, we don't have a, we have like about eight or nine uh, correspondents that work for us. They're in fairly safe parts of the world. Okay. Um, and I think we would hesitate to put people out into a potentially dangerous situation. I have, you know, done that, but only when I felt comfortable with the, the people I was working with that I, I knew their security, they were so security minded that I could more or less relax. We're talking about me doing another, uh, trip, uh, reporting trip into a part of the world that's not very safe. And we're legitimately questioning that. Like, is this, is this going to be okay or should we go? Try to find somebody like I am no war correspondent. I don't know how to protect myself in a conflict uh, environment. So, um, you know, maybe a little cowardice is a virtue in this respect. And maybe we should we should look for a journalist who is, you know, more familiar with that. Uh, it would seem to be a pertinent question to the extent that the church works in dangerous places. Yeah. And covering so, the work of the church and the work of its efforts on behalf of people on the margins who are on the the wrong side of of gun 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 barrels or land laws. Yeah, um, it's almost unavoidable at some at some point, unless those are going to be completely cut off from outside outside information. Yeah, I mean there are. Hey, we all take risks every day. I could get hit by a truck leaving this office, but you know you you try to mitigate that as much as possible, uh, even to the extent of saying, you know what, I can't do this trip. Somebody else should do it. Uh, I would like to do this trip. We'll see if we can pull it off safely. Uh, what I do see, um, like that young woman I mentioned who was killed in Bangui, she was a complete stringer. She had no she had no support system whatsoever. I don't even know how they got her body out of there. Sad to say, probably her family had to do it. Um, and that's phenomenon. We're talking about fewer foreign correspondents. Well, part of being a foreign correspondent was you had an office backing you up, and you had people who were watching out for you and were ready to bail you out if necessary or pull you out if necessary. Uh, that's a lot of, like this, uh, most of the poor gentleman that was killed in, um, uh, in Syria, Foley, he was, I think he was working for the Global Post, just had uh, a la carte. He was a stringer. So he had no support structure whatsoever. And I think, uh, you know, this is an abdication on the part of the whole industry. They love these stories. They get eyeballs for them. And they pushed all the risk back onto the journalist themselves. 
journalist who's often paying for his travel, you know, paying for whatever security he can muster. And then, you know, what happens if something happens to him or her? You know, how do they pay to get out of it? And in the old days, you know, you had editors who would negotiate to get their journalists protected or freed or what have you. If you happen to be working for a European or U.S.-based publication, yeah. Yeah. Um, the phenomenon of stringers in religious journalism and environmental coverage, particularly they're out when, there they're, on their own. when they're working for, you know, outlets based in Asia or sub-Saharan Africa that are under-resourced to begin with, it would seem to be that the, the risks are even more dramatic much more precarious way to try to do things that arguably yeah. are even more important than they would have been 50 years ago. And we've seen what's happened. Some of these people have become casualties of those risks. Um, and journal, I think journalists are, are bigger targets now than they used to be. I, I would not want to be in Mexico, in Mexico working in the journalism profession. You write anything, uh, you know, uh, about the government. I mean, there's so many bad players there that could come looking for you. Uh, you really, you have to have nerves of steel to do that job down there. Absolutely. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Greg Barker, Anna Gallen, Francis Salinal, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the Center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.